to Reactive Attachment, the podcast. I'm Taylor and I'll be hosting your podcast today. Um, I am late on this podcast as usual, but you know what? I'm actually really glad that I haven't posted in a while because this is so insanely important to me to discuss. I mean, I've talked about it before. I've talked about it recently. Um, and... I have been fortunate enough to be enlightened by a complete stranger um, who sent me a link uh, in our conversation. We were having a conversation and um, completely unrelated, really, where this stemmed from. So we're having this conversation uh, that that came out of a a forum about a different issue that's um, in relation to human behavior, but not reactive attachment disorder or attachment in general. Um, and ultimately it was like a feminist conversation about surrogacy and adoption, etc. So, um, I, you know, of course had to pipe up and make my, make my feeling known. And in doing so, I met a, a person who had been adopted and the verbiage this person starts using really is more eloquent than the verbiage I've been using in the last six months. So that's kind of where this, this stim, like this was, um, it was a conversation that I thought was a much smaller conversation. And that is talking about the trauma, um, when we separate the child from the biological parent. Now, I obviously am coming from a position of crisis um, intervention with DCFS and addiction and, you know, uh, just parental failure um, and the state getting involved or family members getting involved and and intervening. It's usually done, the initial one, of course, is usually done um, a little bit later in life, not not at the first signs of birth. but I don't really give a lot of attention to or thinking about, uh, you know, I don't really think about the, the children of um, mothers who are convinced to, to uh, participate in adoption before the child is even born. Uh, maybe it's a healthy young woman that for religious purposes can't or, or won't move forward with the child rearing. You know, these, these other circumstances where a baby is born into the world and immediately removed from the mother and taken to the adoptive family. So I don't really think about that infant um, adoption. You know, it doesn't really cross my everyday agenda. Oh, excuse me. So, um, you know, I, about six months ago, let me back up and, and just kind of um, be a little bit more clear on where this is all coming from. Six or seven months ago, I was having a conversation with um, a person who I consider to be like family. She's like my best friend, but more so like family at this point about the differences between, you know, what it feels like to have, um, you know, she she has raised um, a family member, her niece, and what are the differences and how does it feel? How does it feel different um, when you have a biological child since I don't have one? And I think I've spoke about it on a podcast um, previously, like that she's the first mother that I've ever been able to put into words the feeling. And it resonated with me because obviously we hear all the time, you'll always be my baby. You'll always be my baby. Moms say that to children of all ages from all cultures. And, you know, she was trying to explain to me that it's like, 
this very strange feeling, this connection of like, I can see myself in this child. I can, I can see this child is growing up in age, but she's always my baby. Like I just, I don't know how to put it into words. So, you know, because of how close she and I are and because I'm so close to both of the children and I love them through her and I love them independently of her, I'm able to get a whole new uh, perspective. But I was also able at that point to realize like, well, I don't have a child and I most likely will never have a biological child. I am a biological child of a very attached parent. My mom and I were very much attached, very much bonded. Um, And so I started to kind of look at things from a different perspective um, in the rad world. And I started to really think about how Um, you know, the truth of it is when my mom passed away, it literally shifted the entire universe for me. I physically felt her absence. I could feel it in this like DNA of my body that she was literally gone from this planet. Her existence as a human being that is, um, you know, cognizant and functioning in the world is gone and it shattered me to my core like I mean it's three years later and I'm still barely recovering from it as we speak so I started to look at um, these relationships with children that have reactive attachment disorder or just children of these scenarios and adoptive parents myself you know caregivers people that are intervening the state the way the system gets involved in these things from a different perspective And so I started to develop really strong feelings based on my own experience and a a cumulative experience um, of being in this world for so many years, 15 years, of what I've seen, especially with the opiate epidemic, like the amount of children that are just consistently ripped away from parents because of addiction, um, when funds are being provided to foster care, funds are being provided for adoption. um, Oh my gosh, what is it called? your your stipend your adoption you know the money that you get every month I I usually know this word Um, it'll probably come to me in like 20 minutes so you're you're taking these resources and you're not giving them to the very much um, in need parents these very sick addicted ill parents that need more resources to become equipped with the right tools and the right, um, you know, uh, measures to raise their own children. But we're giving foster homes that have 11 kids and bunk beds and whatever. We're giving them four or $500 a month extra. Plus they're getting all these other benefits that could really have maybe been better utilized to help these parents on a short term basis, keep their kids, raise their kids, learn how to be better parents. And then therefore they would not be um, fraught with guilt and shame for the rest of their life, whether they get sober or not, because of the fact that they failed as, as a parent. And we don't talk about those traumas and, and the truth of like ripping a child away and giving a, a set amount of time and a set amount of clean drug tests and a set amount of this before a parent can really prove that they're a parent. And if they don't do it, then the state will say, the government will say, the judge will say, okay, we're going to terminate your rights, not only just your right. Um, to this child, but you're right to be a parent. And, you know, we're going to move forward with a very much serious, you know, thorough um, official adoption. We're going to change this child's name. We're going to do all of these things. And we're going to assume it can be integrated into this family, whether it's a genetic match or not, whether it's a cultural match or not. And we're going to expect that everybody assimilate and integrate and all is well. So, um, 
you know, I started to really think about these things um, in a different way. I started to feel really strongly. Now, this is also, you know, this is kind of a separate issue at certain points from Rad, but ultimately, I started to feel a, a broader spectrum of feelings towards the whole system, towards the whole reality of like attachment theory, attachment um, trauma, reactive attachment trauma. Um, I, I started to think about things in a different way. And so, like I said, this occurred, um, about six, seven, it's really started heavily for me in July of last year. Um, and it, and it really goes back to maybe May of last year because I started to have these feelings when our goddaughter went home to live with her biological father. Um, there was a, you know, a situation that occurred that it became very clear to me that we could no longer combat what we were up against with her and her, her motivations and her acting out, if you will. It was obviously, um, a wound that was, um, paternal in nature and she needed to heal that and have a chance to heal that with her father. And there was nothing really that we could offer her to improve it at that point. Like she needed to go and live with her father and he's now sober and capable of of, um, raising her. So I had to kind of leave that up to him to make the right choices, give him the right, um, give him the opportunity to make everything, uh, right with her while he could, you know, and I didn't want to be one of those people that held on forever to the idea of like new life, new family. Look at all these things we've done for you. And you know, um, why, how dare you still want to be with your biological parents when we've given so much of our, our lives to you and we've sacrificed for you? Like, cause I don't believe that that's a reality. So, okay. All of that aside, that was a lot of rambling. So I come to this, um, you know, reckoning, if you will, um, in the summer of 2019, let's just say. And because of the community that I'm in, um, you know, when you come, come into these kind of ideas and you're talking about attachment and whatnot through the gateway of rad, um, it's a much more hostile, I think, awareness, like coming into these, these theories and these ideas on your own conscious, you know, your own consciousness kind of becoming evolved enough to really see things from a, a, a different perspective. And you don't have, um, a degree in psychology. You don't have a degree in like any kind of like, um, you know, psycho, um, analysis of any, of any sorts. Like you don't, you don't learn about these things in a tiered educational environment. You don't learn about these things through just a general interest. You don't learn about these things through like happy stories. You're learning about these relationships and these failures of the system, these failures of humans, these failures of children, these failures of parents. I mean, all of these things that are going wrong, it's just like one negative misfire after another. Um, and it's through your own um, acquiring of trauma while you're trying to fill an empty womb, while you're trying to step in for a family friend or a family member, while you're trying to fix something that is clearly falling apart for a child, you're being told by um, DCFS that like, hey, if you can't do it, that's fine. We'll just throw this kid into foster care and you're, you're feeling rushed and maybe you have a foster child that you've created a relationship with and you have been taken care of. And then from there, you are... Uh, then somehow you become required uh, to take care of the sibling. 
maybe. So now you have two children that you're um, adopting or you're fostering with the hopes of moving into a more permanent situation, even though you don't have a bond with the sibling or whatever the case may be. Like there's all of these negative um, paths that will lead you to maybe a new idea or a new awareness about attachment in general. But the perspective, um, like, so for a while, I've had a, a negative feeling towards a certain type of motivated, uh, a certain type of motivation from the adoption side. So um, I've been vocal about this before. When your motivations are to heal and fulfill this empty womb because you can't um, have children naturally, you've, you've gone through, maybe you've tried everything organic, you've tried everything like IVF and all of these things, failure after, you know, one failure after another and to the point where, okay, now we're left with adoption. These are very desperate people in most circumstances. They want to, they have a picture in their mind and they really, really, really need this picture to become a, a, a life, um, a, a living mural of perfection, of, of family, of, of mothering, of um, parenthood and child rearing. It's something that they have always dreamed of and they just really need to fill this empty womb and they'll do it at whatever cost. They'll, they'll go to a different country and adopt a baby. They'll adopt, um, you know, children here. They'll do whatever they have to do, whatever the opportunity presents itself, but they're really trying to, their intentions may seem um, altruistic at, at nature, you know, the nature of them may seem that way. And ultimately they may be doing, um, a service, right? Like they're, they are caring for a child that would otherwise just be stuck in the system. And so, you know, they're patted on the back and they're given, you know, a round of applause for this, but ultimately their intention is to fulfill something that is lacking on their own, in their own life, in their own you know, um, emotional journey, their own physical journey as a, as a human. And that to me has never been a scenario that I am, uh, that I agree with or believe in or whatever. For me, those are always, um, situations that turn out terrible. So, um, I've thought about adoption, foster care, all of these things from many angles, but always through the bias or the perspective of reactive attachment disorder, my own experience raising uh, my goddaughter from a very young age and the battles that I um, went through and the stress and the experiences that I um, myself, you know, uh, fought every day trying to give this child a quote unquote better life. Um, So when I had this conversation, Um, basically we were talking about, you know, um, adoption and how, uh, the, the initial conversation starter was about, you know, for all the people that say, uh, don't do this, or, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do a surrogate. You don't have to do IVF. You don't have to do this. You know, there's always adoption. Why don't you adopt? It's like, um, the perspective this person was writing in was saying like, You don't know what you're talking about with this, you should adopt. And they started talking about the ethics behind adoption, which obviously is a big conversation, one that I never really took 
took uh, a position in or really paid much attention to. But that is very true. There is a very, you know, adoption is an industry. We know that. We know that there are people that steal babies and sell them. You know, we know that there are people that are, are, are their job is to recruit young pregnant women to give their babies up because everybody in the world wants a brand new baby, right? They don't want a four-year-old. They don't want a 12-year-old. They definitely don't want like, you know, um, damaged and damaged children that have not only a voice but a recall like that isn't the picturesque family you know that that many of these people are going to try to build right so like an eight-year-old that can cry for their mom and tell you these stories and all of this all of their horrendous experiences for most people that are seeking adoption they're not seeking the burden of that trauma and I don't blame them for that but in the meantime, we have this whole underground, um, and not even always underground, but we have this unethical, um, you know, a system that is always seeking babies, and therefore there are moms out there in the world that are being manipulated, they're being bought, they're being um, convinced from even within their own families. Like, there are families that are so desperate financially or whatever that they will convince the young mother. Um, it's the right choice. We have a religion that really fuels a lot of these types of choices where a woman gets pregnant out of wedlock or a woman is pregnant, gets impregnated by um, rape or something um, really traumatic causes the, this woman to not want to um, rear the child. Now, she may want to have the baby. She doesn't believe in abortion or whatever the case may be, but she doesn't want to raise the child. Okay, so there's like a lot of... Um, unethical, you know, methodologies behind getting babies into the system. So I didn't put a lot of thought into this, you know, before today, but, um, adoption is definitely something that I have many feelings about because of my own bias. Well, I started to kind of read through these, you know, these, these stories and these opinions and um, I was responding like, hey, also don't forget about reactive attachment disorder. Like a lot of these parents and these families are not prepared. They're not, uh, they don't have the capacity to care for these children. These children have extremely um, demanding needs, mentally, emotionally, whatever. So I threw that opinion out there and in doing so, I was, um, I started interacting with a person who is an adoptee. Uh, I'm assuming it's a she. We're just going to go with that. She was adopted, I think, from infancy. And I didn't ask her story because I didn't know where it was appropriate, when or if it would be appropriate to ask. But um, I reached out to her privately and I was like, hey, like, the things that you're saying are really compelling to me. Like, I really um, am enjoying your perspective and I'd love to talk to you more. So we started chatting back and forth. And we started talking about the adopt- adoption trauma, early, um, early trauma caused by adoption and, you know, what that really meant. And she sends me a link to a YouTube video. And this YouTube video had, and I'm going to, I'm going to actually, um, it'll be linked in the description for this episode. So this, I mean, the amount of validation I felt and the emotional just, I mean, not only was I just affirmed listening to this. Um, YouTube video, which is a speech from a gentleman by the name of Paul Sunderland. A lot of you probably know who he is. I don't know how the hell I've managed to not um, have any exposure to this up until today. But either way, um, 
you know, just goes to show you really like how communities within this, this kind of umbrella of child welfare and development um, are so segregated because I mean, I, it doesn't get much more um, involved than what I currently am and have been. And like this specific conversation, I, I mean, I was almost oblivious to. So, um, sends me this video. I'm going to link it in the description below and I'm actually going to look at it really quick so I can tell you the name of it. Let's see. (laughs) Forgive me. Okay. So it's relinquishment and adoption, understanding the impact of an early psychological wound. Sounds pretty straightforward. Nothing like too groundbreaking there, right? Um, and I'm going to read you the description. So this is by ICAD, so I-C-A-A-D events. Um, and it is, again, by a gentleman named Paul Sunderland. And um, so, so the description says, There is a high incidence of addiction and other mental health disorders amongst adoptees, with a disproportionate number presenting for treatment and recovery programs. As early separation is a relational trauma, it manifests later in life as problems in relationships. The impact of trauma on functioning is both physical and psychological. So that seems kind of um, wordy and ultimately very specific, talking about like presenting for treatment and recovery and having relational issues. But that is not really at all what what I took away from, from this whole speech. So... What I took away from it was the most beautifully um, spoken representation of facts. He says at one point, um, and I hope I'm quoting this correctly. He says at one point, um, let me actually just pull up my notes here so I don't so I don't slaughter it all the way. I mean, this may not be such a revelation to everyone, but to me, it is like. Uh, It is beyond. (laughs) Um, He says that adoption is a denial. He says that it is a denial and it is a hope. It is a happily ever after hope. So what he, he really highlights, especially in the beginning is like adoption is a pretty word. It's a, it's a putting a, you know, lipstick on the pig, basically, um, relinquishing, um, the, the maternal, especially maternal relation, is an abandonment. It is a causation that is far greater than just like, oh, you know, we talk about the, the maternal bond and how we just need a caregiver. Any caregiver that can step in ASAP and be there consistently, and that is not true. And I've been saying it's not true for many months now, and I've been feeling it's not true for even longer than that. The truth is, and, and he goes through a list of different studies that validate this, but the truth is, like, we have got to give credit where, where credit is due. When a woman makes a child inside of her body, that child is, is scientifically becoming bonded to her, to this, this human. And when this human waits for nine months to meet this person and they start to, you know, the neurons and, and there's like, there's actual scientific, um, chemistry happening, right? Like there's body chemistry, there's mental 
mental connections. There's trillions of connections that are being made as this human is forming. And when they come out into the world, their expectation is that this person, that they are built, designed, evolution has told us, like, this person will protect you, raise you. This is part of you. You are part of her. Um, And there's a severance there. There is a, a wound that is, um, how does he say, not remem- it, is, it is remembered but not recalled. And that was like really impactful for me. Like there is a damage that is done that maybe they could, there isn't a physical memory associated with it. You can't verbally express um, a remembrance of being in, in the womb. But there is damage done nonetheless because this human being connected to this other human being with an evolution, uh, evolutionary expectation that you will be part of and be one with this human. Um, and that is just cut. And when that is cut, the damage is, is so, so often overlooked because of adoption. It is overlooked in the way of, you know, we're giving this child, we're saving this child. We chose this child. Words I've myself used. um, We chose you. We choose you every day. Those things. I've said those things myself. And while they are true, it is not, it is not to negate the trauma and the wound for this person being um, abandoned. And it, and, and it's not some huge revelation that adoption is also relinquishment, is also abandonment, but it's not is also. It is primarily, first and foremost, it is this thing. And the parents or the family that, that take this child on with the expectation that we, if we get it early enough, we can just integrate it into our life, especially he talks about transracial, um, that there are smells and there are sounds and cadences that this child has heard in the womb or in the first few weeks of life or whatever it may be, that this child is already culturally um, integrated into a genetic um, expectation for what types of things it will experience. And that is obviously the smells, the sounds, the, the cadences, the rhythms, the, um, you know, the, the tones, the, the level of um, uh, hormonal response that the mother has in her world. So we forget or we just overlook or we have excused the fact that children are born and they have a, um, I'm going to use the word expectation. It's, it's an, it's not a, it's a subconscious genetic. I mean, an ingrained expectation, um, that the specific kind of currency and this route that they were, they were, you know, on their reward system, the exchange of, um, hormones and, um, you know, the, the limbic system, the, all of these integrations of, of the way our bodies experience trauma and bonds and attachment. This child is born into a world and it has kind of a flow that it's on. I mean, it has a path and it's, that path is led by and, um, created by the person who grew it in its stomach and in her stomach. And when that is interrupted, it is a trauma that is unlike anything else. Um, he discusses at one point that the difference between trauma and stress is attachment that, and this is basically the beautiful 
eloquent way of saying what I was trying to express months ago, which is, um, it doesn't matter how severe the addiction, right? It doesn't matter how severe the poverty, the starvation even. I mean, you see children that haven't, that they're eating um, out of trash cans and whatever, but they don't want to be removed from that environment. They don't care that you could take them to a house that is overflowing with an abundance of food and they would still choose to go back to their mom because that is a stressful situation. And as long as attachment isn't interrupted, stress stays stress and it may be stressful. It may be a very stressful occurrence in their life, but it's not a trauma. And when attachment is disrupted, it becomes a trauma. Um, and I was like so moved by that because it is 100% true. Um, we see it every day in RAD. Like we see it all the time. We see um, adoptees that are traumatized by the actual adoption. By being adopted and being forced to integrate and forced to bond, there's, you know, there is a, a traumatized child <laughs> That was, um, they, they were cut off from the maternal attachment process that they were, you know, in the midst of, you know, correctly creating as they, you know, should, as they should. And now they have that trauma on top of the trauma of being, um, genetically, how does he say it? Um, it's, they're not genetically matched for the household. So, so for whatever reason, you know, there are, there are indicators of, um, this is my family, right? Like, so when a child who was adopted meets their biological parents and they can see themselves in that family tree and they can see themselves on the mother and the father and they say, oh my God, I finally feel like, I just feel it. I just fit. And I believe that because I mean, hello, like we see it every day. We know, especially to the parents out there that have adopted children and bio children, like you could and your children, your biological children could find you in a crowd, could smell you with their eyes closed. They know you, they feel you, they breathe you. They like, I mean, my mom's voice, like no other voice. Um, like my aunt sounds a lot like my mom. It's alarming now that she's passed, but in a room of them together, people would say, I can't tell y'all apart. Y'all sound just alike. And I'd be like, what? They don't. But now that my mom has passed, I can hear that. And isn't that interesting that I never could hear it until my mom has passed, until my mom passed away. And then it was so similar that it was eerie because I think my brain is looking to hear that voice. It wants to hear her voice. It wants to, to feel the feeling of of comfort that is just simply felt when I hear her voice. So, um, we know these things, but we somehow disconnect ourselves from truth and, and what we, what we know to be fact internally when we're trying to integrate adopted children into our lives. So in speaking with this person, um, I said, you know, it's funny because I've been kind of, I don't want to say I'm all the way anti-adoption because I feel like there's a place for it, but I feel like I'm anti-adoption. I have been for a while and I don't, I just don't have the language to express these feelings because they're very controversial. Right. And what was said to me is I am pro guardianship because it doesn't remove identity. And that is exactly what I feel like when we adopt and we try to integrate because the, the kid wants to belong. The kid wants to have a mother and a father and siblings. And, and the child wants that. And we want that for the child, right? So 
we move into a space of like, let's just pretend and let's just try to, you know, um, we'll just try to paint this picture and we'll live in this mural of family and it will work and it'll be okay. And I'll give you a hundred percent of everything and even more than I give my biological children and your siblings will, will be, they'll always know you at, you know, as their sibling and whatever else. So we attempt this and we make a good, stern, solid, legitimate effort. But ultimately what we see is that this effort to integrate is also a severance of identity and when the integration isn't, it doesn't connect and it's not working and, it, and it's failing for whatever reason, or even if it's pretended and, and we assimilate these children into these lives, but then they find out later on the truth or whatever the case may be. It's like, now we have this, this vacuum, this void of identity that no one really has all the answers to except for the biological parents. And I know there are situations where there is, um, war and, you know, the entire family is wiped out and these children are, are, you know, rescued or saved. There are very extreme circumstances where there isn't a biological connection that can even be um, experienced. There's no family tree to even um, climb, if you will. But let's just talk about the average situation. The average situation is we do not want the child to have a connection to its biological identity because that negates its adopted identity. And so when we when we um, humor the biological identity, then we have lost that missing puzzle piece that is the facade of, um, that we pretend to have. And when this, this person said to me, I am pro-guardianship because it does not erase the identity. And that is so exactly the words I needed for all of these months and for all of this time where I was feeling these things and I couldn't really put the language to it. That is, that is exactly right. And, you know, when we talk about reactive attachment disorder, we're talking about this, but we're not talking about this. We're talking about a lot of things that are fact. They are true. These children do in fact have all of the things that I've always said. These are real experiences for the caregivers. These are And it goes back to the failure of the system because the fact that we do not put these types of children in homes with people that are aware, they're honest with themselves, their intentions are clear, they're trained on how to deal with reactive attachment disorder, they're trained on how to deal with very severe attachment, you know, um, wounds and traumas that are physical, sexual, mental, all of these things. And we feel all of this guilt for the child and we say, okay, you know, innocence bias or whatever else, you know, words we've used in the past. But ultimately, a lot of times the placement itself is is very clearly causing more disruption and more chaos for both the, the caregivers and the child. And because the system continues to brush, um... these types of conversations under the rug they're they're continuously trying to you know um, mimic what what society wants which is we have a wounded child we have someone that wants to love them let's put them in this home and let's hope for the best even if they're qualified even if their intentions are to fill an empty womb even if their intentions are to get a paycheck even if their intentions are xyz we do not appropriately address 
the severity of the wound that is associated with removing or let's say relinquishing from the maternal connection adoption is a trauma it is a very big trauma that causes a life a a set and series of lifelong um, emotional behaviors and responses It, it is it is all serious it is severe like I like I even said in the last podcast or the 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 one before that when I was I was saying like why are we why do we have such a strong drive to raise a child that had comes from this very broken circumstance right like a very traumatic circumstance that's going to come with a lot of um, developmental delays or other types of delays and 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 cognitions of you know that are that of a child who's been through trauma our maternal drive tells us to take care of this child and that we can love this child and we feel so much empathy and sympathy and all of these compassionate feelings because of our drive as as maternal beings yet a drive that would cause us to take on and to sacrifice something so large yet we give no credit to the fact that that same drive times 1000 is impacted when we remove a biological child from a parent and we do it with haste and we do it with um you know without ever trying to really really care for the i mean yes there are services and yes we say that you know reunification is always the key and that we want to um we really want to um focus on uh reunifying the family reunifying the mom and the child blah 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 but do we really because evidence would would show that we make it extremely difficult in many cases to have a thoughtful reunification that is um skillfully and mindfully enhancing the mother with the skills that she needs that that she is given all the resources and at whatever cost like and I don't mean whatever cost like okay we'll just spend you know um unscrupulous amounts of money to make sure a young teenage mom has her child back what I mean is are we allocating funds fairly for reunification the same that we are for placement because we're not we're just not we're not and we're not giving these these moms the opportunity to really learn in her own language how to care for a child in a way that that is um adequate first of all okay because i feel like there is an adequate level of care that um that that standard has to be recognized but then also enhance that standard the basics with all of the um all of these resources that we could give them to I'm trying to get my thoughts together sorry I got distracted but all of these resources we could really not only ensure that they're giving the basic level of care but they're also learning in their own language they're dealing with their own trauma so that they can avoid doing the same things that that were done to them they're learning how to really like understand their child and how to extract the things that their child needs um, and then care for those those needs in a in a in a positive and um, 
honest way because not every child needs the same thing. And foster care is yes, necessary. Um, Adoption is yes, necessary. But what is even far more, far more necessary than all of those things is that we are giving mothers especially, and I'm not trying to exclude fathers, but let's just focus on the real core um, attachment here. So that we're giving mothers the opportunity to learn the skills that they need to be the best versions of a parent that they can be for the child that they made. And also, are we really, really considering the stress versus trauma? So a child can, in this, in this speech you'll, or in this talk you'll hear, um, that children are resilient. They can bounce back. I know for a fact that yes, while I saw things and experienced things that other children didn't see and experience because of my mom's, um, struggles with addiction and and whatnot, those were stressful events. And when I look back on my life, I do not feel stress when I think about those moments of her and I together dealing with her dramas, if you will. When I do feel stress is every time I was removed from the home and I was, the contact with, with my mom was cut off as she had to earn and prove and blah, blah, blah. I felt stress in all of those moments and I can still feel that stress when I look back on those times and I can go right back to those, to the moments of panic. So what I'm saying here is we really need to broaden our um, understanding as humans that are in this experience of caregiving for tri- for a child that is not our own. We need to really understand um, all the angles and, and, and really um, broaden our capacity for understanding when it comes to attachment in general. And this is something that um, it seems to... When, it, when a parent or a caregiver is in crisis and chaos, which with RAD we almost always are, their ability to receive knowledge or information is limited because they are so maxed out. But what I think it really can, you know, if we are searching for, for a better understanding of the situation that we're in, I think that you can find some peace and some hope um, and some understanding that if we support the biological parents, because the child's always looking for the bio, the bio parents, right? The child always wants to reconnect. The child always wants to have an experience of understanding with their bio parent. The child always wants to be told like, hey, I do love you. I did want you. I did fight for you. And we as adoptive or foster parents or whatever, we very frequently interrupt that for them and it causes bitterness and resentment but if we can work to really um, be like not gatekeepers of that relationship but shepherds of that relationship um, those are the only people that can heal rad in my opinion the only traumas that can that the only people that can heal these traumas like love we know is not enough it doesn't do it you can love this child to death it will not fix it but the biological parents do have the opportunity and that opportunity extends and reaches far beyond the right now it goes for years and years 
um, they forgive and forget very easily when it comes to biological parents. So if we can be the shepherds of those those moments and those opportunities to have um, validation from bio parents, and we can, you know, create um, a language between the two of them, and and not not get our emotions, especially the emotions that revolve around the sacrifice. Um, swept up in this and see this for what it is, which is the truth of a human that created another human and there was an interference and now all I want to do is I want to um, be the kind of person that is hands-on every day trying to, you know, assist the communication, assist these these humans in, in, in reconnection. Like I've said before, um, I don't think that a failed drug test is enough to eliminate a visit. We know for a fact that people cannot get sober for their children because addiction is, um, it is a much bigger disease than just, um, you know, desire to do the right thing or being compelled by biology. Like nobody wakes up and decides that they're going to sell their child for drugs. Nobody wakes up one day and just chooses to, you know, ruin every relationship they've ever cared, you know, with every person they've ever cared about. They don't choose to steal from those that have, you know, that they love and that they, they don't choose to burden their grandparents with their children and they don't choose to go years at a time without seeing or speaking to their children. Addiction is in and of itself a beast and the guilt these people feel keep them sick. So the longer that they are estranged from their children, the more guilt they have. And even when they get sober, many relapses come from, you know, I've been raising these other two children that I had and they are part of my life every day. And I feel so guilty that my oldest child is still with my mom and they don't know me and I don't know them. Our jobs should be to, you know, we should be trained on reactive attachment disorder. We should be well aware of what that looks like. We should be well aware of what adoption really is. And it should always be a shepherd, um, you know, of the truth and of the resources to either, you know, um, reunify, I feel, or to at least um, make sure that this child always has the opportunity to get what it needs to heal and repair from its biological parent. And I do not think that most of our, our, our scenarios with children that have reactive attachment disorder or attachment disorders of any kind, um, I do not think that's usually our, our effort. I don't think our efforts are ever really positioned in that way because we are dealing with terminated um, biological rights. We're dealing with a terminated um, identities at that point. You know what I mean? All right. I need to stop rambling because as you all know, I can go on and on and on. I'm going to post a link to this video. I'm going to post it, um, you know, in the description. I'm going to share it on social media as well. And I really do want to hear your feedback. I want to hear if any of you are kind of coming around to understanding that while we fought so long to keep biology at bay, especially when we're talking about addiction, um, you know, and the abandonment and the neglect that comes along with it. We are seven years in and they're still addicted and we are seven years in and they're still failing drug tests. And, um, we're saying, Hey, like we didn't tell them not to come for Thanksgiving. They chose not to come. I know I'm being redundant to the last, um, you know, podcast where I discuss all of these things, but 
what I'm urging you all to do is to separate yourself from your own emotion and your own attachments to ideas and hopes and dreams um, and to listen to this talk and to really interpret the information um, in an educated way, in an unbiased fashion where you can really see this, the things that this man is saying. And these are all things that are, we all know, I feel like at the core of ourselves and he does give tools and, and ideas or like, you know, um, he gives methods for, you know, what do we do with this information? How do we fix these problems? But we know from the reactive attachment side of things that it's not that easy and that this is, you know, systemic in, in, in nature because of the social services industry, if you will. Um, we have a bigger obligation here and I just really hope that, you know, uh, all the people that I communicate with through this, through, through this outlet that I talk to privately that won't, um, speak up on social that, you know, that email me that are reaching out to me in ways that are, you know, that don't disclose their identity. I really hope that all of you even can take this and you can, um, kind of marinate and digest it and, and understand that there is a change in the consciousness of how we're looking at and dealing with these issues and your voice matters and it hasn't been given much thought up until now, but I think that the biological trauma the biological parents trauma is important to discuss and I can't speak to that. Um, I really can't. So I want to hear what you guys have to say. I want to hear the arguments and I want to hear, you know, your breakthroughs and your awareness on this topic and whatever change you've had. And I know that there's a big shift in the, um, in the, in the, the side of, of rad caregiving, that is exhausted, that has been in the game for a long time, that has seen the, you know, how all of this unfolds. I know that there's a shift in consciousness about biological parents, but, you know, new adoptive parents and foster parents that are still in the belief system that love is enough and all they need to do is be consistent and love these kids and they'll love them back to, to, to health is, it, you know, they are the ones that are I'm interested to hear from as well because they are the ones who they haven't seen it all unfold and they haven't seen it unravel. They still are optimistic about things that are unrealistic, you know? Okay. So hopefully this wasn't too rambly. I'm sure it was as it always is. As you guys know, uh, you can reach me, um, at reactive attachments on Facebook or Instagram, um, reactive attachments at gmail.com. If you want to send an email, And then, of course, you can hear us on um, any of the platforms that you like to listen to your podcasts on. So hopefully um, I will one one of these days I will improve in my ability to get episodes out to the public. I know I hear I hear your voices. I hear your complaints that you binged every episode and you want more. I first of all, I'm honored that you feel that way because I think most of the time I'm just a rambling mess. But I appreciate you taking the time to voice that and to keep, um, to keep me motivated and invested in doing this, um, on top of everything else that's always going on. Sometimes this just becomes the last thing on my mind and sometimes it's just too much and I don't have the capacity or the energy to fulfill my 
my own requirement for, for episodes. So I'm trying to do better all the time. I say that every episode, but, um, for those of you that are still with me and that are chugging along, I love you. I appreciate you. I am listening. I am here. Um, and I am trying always to do better. So until next episode, you guys just, uh, please send your ideas, your thoughts, your debates, your, your, your discussions, whatever you want to say, like I'm all ears. All right. And I'll talk to you guys soon. See you next episode. Mm